This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, George the Second. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Rex Factor, viewing all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth the Second. This week, George the Second. George the Second, the second of uh, four in a row. Yeah, which does get confusing. Uh, we had a couple of messages about George. Yeah. Managed to find uh, a semblance of debate. Right. Uh, first on Twitter from uh, Central History, which is a um, school in uh, Newcastle. They said, well done for struggling through George I, who sounded pretty dour. <laughs> and if yeah. you recall, we were debating who it was that had done the smallpox uh, inocul- inoculation um, vaccination. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we were suggesting Jenner. And he said, Edward Jenner developed the vaccine from cowpox in 1796, vacca meaning cow in Latin. Smallpox inoculation, which is what we were talking about, was brought from India by La- Lady Mary Wortley Montague. There we go, this Twitter's brilliant, you see. So we've got inoculations, but the vaccine is to come right. a bit later. Okay. Apparently when uh, vaccines first came along, people were sceptical about them because of the cow association, so there were cartoons of people turning into cows. I've seen those, yeah, yeah. yeah. However, we did find somebody who was willing to stand up for boring George. Wasn't George first, was it? Uh, well, he, d- he did actually on Twitter, but yeah. also Jackie Frost on Facebook said, I'm very disappointed with the lack of enthusiasm for George the first. I understand not reaching Rex Factor, but you failed on subjectivity. He deserved more. A king who established power in the world using mostly peaceful means, prosperity, and tried to help with religious freedom without going overboard on power. He is like the dream king of America. Kings who throw massive parties tend not to be the ones where the average subject feels safe and well cared for. I don't know. I mean, with, he came to power without using force, but he was just given the crown. He was just given the crown, yes. I mean, I think he... I was surprised we gave him nine, which I thought actually was maybe slightly low, sort of below mm. half marks, a little harsh for a peaceful, stable reign. Yeah. But at the same time, he didn't do no, he an didn't awful do lot. He yeah. just sort of sat back and wished that he didn't have to... Yeah, and he was in the position Peter. where William had... Yeah, and he, he'd sorted it all out, so he could just sit back and mm. not make a fuss and didn't really have too yeah. much, yeah. But nevertheless, good to have that bit of a bait. So, on to George II. He is born in 1683, son of George I and Sophia Dorothea of Sel, and he becomes king in 1727, so he's about 43 years old. That's quite old, isn't it, for Factor? It is quite old. In fact, it's the... The sixth oldest to accede to the throne. So, a decent old age. And he is the fifth great-grandfather of Elizabeth II. 
That's really close now. I can't remember the last time we did that, but it seems much closer. We well, we did it last did time. George the first. Yeah, we do it every single oh, time. Okay. <laughs> Uh, in terms of his appearance, he's quite a bit shorter than average, a little man, um, a long Roman nose and bulging blue eyes. Right. He's also the last um, king or queen to be born outside of Great Britain, so he's the last Hanoverian who's actually born in Hanover. Another cracking Rex fact. Does that mean he's he learns English, or is he, does, is he a native English speaker? He learns English. Right. As you'll okay. see, it's uh, a particular point he makes of learning it. If we recall, um, his mother, Sophia Dorothea of Sel, had been imprisoned for life for her affair with a Swedish colonel. Um, oh, yeah. They, yeah. So that was when he was nine years old. As a result, from a very early age, hated his father, cherished the memory of his mother. Although when he became king, sadly, he discovered the letters that had been going between his mother and the... Colonel mm. realised that actually she was oh, <laughs> adultery, so then he never spoke of her again. He wasn't given much uh, responsibility or trust by his father as a young man, brought up mainly by his grandmother, Sophia of Hanover. However, he did get to fight with courage at the Battle of Oudenard in 1708, which was under Duke of Marlborough. Oh, right, the cracking one, mm. yeah. Um, however, one thing George I did do for him was give him the freedom to choose his bride, because obviously George I hadn't had a such good experience of man marriage. Is this the first time we see this? Because normally they're all, it's all... It's all arranged. They yeah. much choice. Yeah, so he gives him freedom of choice and he meets uh, a woman called Caroline. Incognito, um, although apparently it's pretty obvious who he was, but nevertheless... They love this, don't they? they <laughs> playing the game. Yeah, Henry VIII does, yeah. well, doesn't he? Um, and after he met her, he declared that he would not look at anyone else. Um, having said that, he did then sleep through the wedding ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> Caroline is a very impressive woman, large, blonde, beautiful smile, and apparently a bosom of exemplary magnitude. Wow, crikey. Um, Acknowledged by many as being the most intelligent queen consort in British history. Right. Uh, But anyway, so he is married, and then in 1714, when Queen Anne died, his father, George I, became King of England. Mm. Became George I. So, he is the Prince of Wales. Yeah, so they got married before he was an heir? Before, indeed. okay. Now... If we recall from last time, things didn't go well between George I and his son. No. They were at odds. Particularly irksome for George I was that his son, George II, and Caroline openly courted popularity with people in England. This is where we had that split between the MPs. Exactly. Um, He refused to leave George, um, Prince George, as regent whenever he returned to Hanover. Um, So whilst he was away... George II and his wife Caroline set up a really cultured court at Hampton Court, bring lots of people over, try and appeal to the populace in a way that George I hadn't been able to and didn't really like to do. And they did speak English. Recall, George I didn't really speak very much English. Yeah. They do. They spoke very fluently, although heavily accented. And apparently George II would just speak louder to compensate. (laughs) <laughs> for his inability that's what we get it for okay. indeed so um, he sort of undermined himself for example saying I have not one drop of blood in my veins that is not English come for the vocal cords exactly but things came to a head when um, one of his children at christening George I insisted on his grandchild's baptismal sponsor being the Duke of Newcastle who was a man that George II hated so they had that public spat at the ceremony where George II um, starts shouting at him and said, You rascal, I will find you. Uh, but the accent made the Duke of Newcastle think that he said, I will fight you, and thus that it was the challenge to a duel. So he got all panicky about it. George I got all pan- panicky about it. And in the end, George II and Caroline were expelled from St James's College. How long did that last for? 
Um, it lasted for a couple of years, I think, until Walpole engineered a reconciliation. Well, they're really not going to ever get on those, are they? But George II wasn't very happy about it, because they went to Leicester House, set up a rival court, again, attracting the dissident Whigs and Tories, mm. so the oppositional figures, at the time included Walpole and his ally Townsend. But when Walpole engineers reconciliation with George I, which George II has to go along with, he holds a bit of a grudge against Walpole. But then in uh, 1727, George I dies. And he goes, woohoo! Well, he, he doesn't actually, he refuses to believe it. Walpole, when he hears the news, when he was having dinner, um, was desperate to be the first person to tell George II because he wants to retain his yeah. uh, position of power. So he jumped uh, onto a horse, dashed off to Richmond. George II had to get up out of bed to hear the news, and then he wouldn't believe it at first when Walpole Because he was so happy? Him. Well, no, because he thought it was a trick from his father and he was going to try and sort of push him into treason so that he'd be disinherited or something. He was really cagey about it. God, God they've got such a bad relationship. So apparently crazy. his first line to Walpole was just, that is one big lie. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't believe it at all. He's right, though. That would be a huge lie. Yes, it would be. A yes. <laughs> really, really big lie. <laughs> So they have coronation, a magnificent uh, spectacle. Must be one of the most glorious coronations that there had been up to that point. Scaffolding was constructed inside Westminster Abbey so that people could come in and watch. Um, and the procession was so large and so long, apparently it took two hours to go by right. to actually make its wow. way in. And uh, an old friend of ours from the reign of Queen Anne, Sarah Churchill, if we remember. Oh, the one who they fell out? Yeah. yeah. Still going. Um, apparently she had to rest her old feet, so she took a drum from a soldier and used it as a stool. <laughs> and of course, we have music, and this is where Handel, once more, comes to the fore. Oh, yeah. Usually, uh, the anthems would be written by the organist and composer of the Chapel Royal, which uh, was Maurice Green at this stage, but despite being a favourite to George I, Handel got given the nod by George II. He only had four weeks, but he wrote four anthems, including Zadok the Priest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is um, very, very famous. It's been played at every coronation since. Also the sort of Champions League mm. music as well. Very powerful, majestic piece of music. Cool. And that's how George II starts his reign, with a bang. Yeah, OK. Brilliant. Here we go. Walpole, of course, was worried. He wanted to get to George II first because he thinks he might not want me. He holds a grudge. Mm. Thankfully, Walpole is very good friends with Caroline. Queen Caroline. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. So even though George had uh, decided that Walpole was a great rogue and Townsend a choleric blockhead, <laughs> and he wanted a, another man, Spencer Compton, to effectively head the government, Walpole was able to emerge as the only man that could do it, partly because he had mastery of the House of Commons, also because he was able to secure more money in the civil list for George II, £800,000 a year rather than the 600 that uh, Compton was going to give him. So just buying positions, yeah. Buying positions, but also, and he had influence with the great chartered companies like the East India Company, the South mm. Sea Company, but also it's the friendship with Caroline that's key. Right. So she is able to mm. convince George that Walpole's the man. And um, even though there are sort of rumours at the time about them being a bit too close and there being an affair which was almost certainly not the case because uh, Walpole at 20 stone was not uh, attractive to Caroline. There was a contemporary rhyme, apparently, the potent knight whose belly goes at least a yard before his nose. <laughs> 20 stone, that's huge. That's a big man. Yeah. But nevertheless, they worked together to influence George, so they'd have a meeting together and then Caroline would go and meet George and then by the time Walpole has met with George, George will kind of already start to come round mm. to the greed Clever. way of doing things. This is also the point at which we can really say that Walpole becomes the first Prime Minister. Right. Because he was still in partnership with uh, Townsend from the previous reign. 
but they had a differing view of foreign policy. Townsend was quite bellicose, wanted to go to war. Walpole wanted peace and stability so he could keep taxes low. Caroline supported Walpole, so in 1730, when it became clear he wasn't going to get his way, Townsend resigns, and we can now really see Walpole as properly head of the government. Was that... So he resigns... It wasn't amicable between them? Not very amicable, because he realised that he's getting marginalised and can't influence things. Mm. And in 1733, George II offers Walpole 10 Downing Street. Right, so that's been there from the start. Been there for a while, but just someone else is living there. Yeah. And Walpole says, well, I'll take it for now, but it should probably just be with the office of the First Lord of the Treasury. So once I'm not there anymore, the next person can have it. And from there, of course, we get the tradition that the Prime Minister gets 10 down. That's cool. Although, from 1735 to 1902, only 15 Prime Ministers actually chose to live there. So it was only from the 20th century that everyone... But that was like the office of the Prime Minister. Yeah, and it was also because so many of them were dukes and lords that they had much bigger houses somewhere else. However, all is not well in other areas for George II, and once again with the Georgians, it's his oldest son. Right. Almost exactly the same situation. This is Prince Frederick. So this is the future King George III? No. This is just Prince Frederick. His name is Frederick. He's the oldest child of George II and Caroline. In 1714, when George and Caroline had come over to England, he got left behind at the age of seven. So he stayed at the court in Hanover while they all went off to England. And he didn't see them again until he was brought to England in 1728, when he was 21. So he didn't see his parents or family for 14 years. Wow. They seem, I don't know why, they seem to pretty much taken against him almost from birth <laughs> decided they just didn't like him oh dear George II's devastated discover that rather than being interested in genealogy and military history he prefers music and arts and things like this yeah so they don't hit it off very well uh, George II uh, doesn't give him much leeway as his father hadn't done to him calls off the marriage plans which George I had been planning for Prince Frederick to a woman who was apparently of dubious um, mental Stability? Stability, yes, that's a good word. So George II said that grafting my half-witted son upon a mad woman would not improve the breed. Right. Um, Only gave him a £24,000 a year allowance as Prince of Wales, whereas George II, when he was Prince of Wales, had £100,000 a year. Mm. And when George II goes back to Hanover from time to time, Caroline is left as sole regent and not his son. Which is exactly the same as what George I had done to George II. Why is this? Do we have any idea why... Partly, I guess, because he'd been in Hanover so often and George I liked to go back, George I got on well with his grandson. Right. Okay. So so George II kind of held that against him. Mm. But otherwise, it's not sure why. That's very strange. However, from that point on, Frederick starts courting popularity. Is this going to be exactly the same? Almost. Sets himself up as the Patriot Prince, so whereas George II is going back to Hanover, he's staying in England and he loves England... He played cello in a local village orchestra. Apparently when um, his coach knocked an old woman and she dropped all our oranges, he stopped the coach, got out and helped pick them all up for her. Um, when In 1736, there was a, a gin act, because there was concern that gin had just come over to England. Yeah. And it was being drunk by the pint. Mm. So people worried about all the layabouts and drunkards. Hogarth yeah, was Hogarth, doing his yeah. um, famous satires. Mm. Um, but it's very unpopular when they try, in effect, really to legislate against it. So Frederick is seen in market taverns, in pubs, raising his glass of gin ostentatiously so that all the populace can see and think, oh. wow, he's one of us. 
Yeah. Things really come to a head when uh, his firstborn child, Frederick's firstborn child, is born. He doesn't want his parents to be there. They sort of refused, I think, to let him be in St. James's uh, Palace for it to happen. So, without letting them know that it's about to happen, he bundles his wife, Augusta, into a carriage while she's going into labour. They zoom off to St. James's uh, Palace. She's put upstairs onto a hastily made uh, bed with table linen because no one knew that she was coming. Hmm. And without the presence being present, gives birth to a child, who, of course, would be the next in line after Frederick. Mm, yeah. Um, apparently, he was, whilst, um, whilst they were making the journey, Augusta was quite stressed out about it. So Frederick was saying, come, come, all will be soon over. Courage, courage. Ah, what foolishness. <laughs> and <laughs> later complained that he got a bad back from having to hold her down in the carriage. Wait, it does sound like hard work, doesn't it? Very hard work. I don't think women appreciate quite what men go yeah, through this in is... this period. Well, I, d- I was speaking to a friend at the weekend who said that Rex Pacter is at times a little perhaps sexist or chauvinistic. I can't believe no, that. No, I don't. I don't. It's, it's, uh... Nonsense. Of course, George II and Caroline are outraged at this. This is, I mean, it is a ridiculous thing to do. Obviously, they've got... Their... Just because they're not there. Because they're not there because he's deliberately not allowed them to be there. They should be there. It's protocol. It's what, right. what happens. Yeah. So what does George II do? He expels his son from court, just as his father did yeah, to him. The, we could have just rebadged the last episode. We could, because he ends out. up setting up a rival court at Leicester House, <laughs> just like George II. <laughs> this is madness. He even takes it a step further. He becomes an effective, almost leader of the opposition. So he does cause them problems and effectively campaigns for the opposition at elections. So it's going a little step further. Yeah, he is it... quite a thorn in the mm. side. George II then suffers something of a mid-reign crisis. Things really go quite badly for him. Firstly, his beloved wife Caroline dies in 1737. She'd suffered an umbilical rupture during her Ooh, final labour, uh, but never seen the doctor about it. And uh, in 1737, a loop of the bowel squeezed out and got trapped. That is horrific. Left too long. The doctors thought the bowel was an abscess, so cut it off. Oh, oh, oh my good gracious. <laughs> and uh, she suffered a very slow and that sounds painful death. Mm. Bore it very stoically, apparently, but hit George II very hard. He stayed with her day and night, apparently punched a doctor when he was first told that it was going to be fatal. They took the news badly. <laughs> yes. Um, he was very tearful, apparently, when he next opened Parliament, had to keep stopping every now and again, and all the queens had to be removed from his playing cards. Oh, so it would upset him if he saw a queen. Sweet. In it. And he continued to pay her servants, apparently, saying that I would have no one the poorer for her death than myself. Oh, that's rather nice of him. Very nice of him. Yeah. 1742, Walpole falls from power, finally. How long has he been there? Well, I mean, 1730 was when he became fully established by himself. But Took going, 12 years. But, that, but previously, of course, we're going back into the reign of George I, so yeah. almost 20 years. Oh, crikey, yeah. His Whig rivals believed that he was becoming something of a pro-monarch Tory. He survived a confidence vote in 1742 by just three votes, which wasn't really tenable, so he resigned. Mm. And he died three years later in 1745. Yeah. As so often happens when people retire. Indeed. He'd have a hobby. And then in 1751, Prince Frederick dies. Ooh. And this is why he doesn't become George III. He dies during the reign of George II. He was only 44 years old. Some people attributed it to a blow from a cricket ball that hit him in the chest a few years earlier because he was a big patron of cricket. More likely complications following pleurisy. That sounds more likely. Yeah. But he believes this one. Oh, yes, he believes it. Yes. Okay, right, but 
Frederick thus obviously mm. doesn't become king, so his son, he has a son, which, who is George III, so we skip a generation right. after George II. But we are still with George II, and he's got a very big challenge, namely Bonnie Prince Charlie. Oh, yes, right, OK, so this is coming back. The Jacobites are back. Bonnie Prince Charlie, um, another Charles Edward Stuart, he's the son of the old pretender, sort of James III, yeah. if you like, so the grandson of James II in this Catholic line. 24 years old, a tall, handsome and inspiring character in rather stark contrast to his Stuart predecessors. He's actually quite an inspiring leader. Oh, right, yeah, because they were all quite tall, weren't they, but just quite rubbish. Rubbish, yeah. yeah. 1743, uh, the French defeated a British army at Fontenoy in Belgium, which meant that the British troops were kind of very much caught up in Europe. So this opens the way for a Jacobite invasion. So in 1745, Bonnie Prince Charlie lands in Scotland. And presumably he's called Bonnie Prince Charlie, named by the Scots. This isn't just... Yes, no, his name is Charles. Yeah. Edward Stewart. So he lands with just seven companions, of no particular note. That's going to do nothing. It's not enough. (laughs) Very little equipment, but he sends out a summons to the Highland clans, and he's joined by about 1,200 MacDonalds and Camerons. Still not very many, but nevertheless, with 1,200 men, he sets off, makes a quick progress, proclaims his father, the king, because he's still alive, himself as regent, and uh, who's his father? James the Third, if we will, the old pretender. Right. Oh, okay. And he's he still just around. didn't make the journey. No, he's, right. he's a bit old, old now. Yeah. So he becomes him king, um, himself as regent, uh, progresses to Perth and Edinburgh, and then people start to flock to him. Right. And then they defeat a Hanoverian army at Preston Pans. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Just outside of Edinburgh, only 170 of about 2,300 English troops escape. Wow. So it's a massive defeat for the Hanoverians, a huge morale-boosting victory for the Jacobites. Mm. So they basically established control over Scotland, and now he marches south into England. Goes via Carlisle, gets as far as Derby. Which is really quite south. Very far, so sort of middle of the country. Mm. Um, He promised that they'd get support from English Jacobites who would come out in support of him once he came into England, also that the French would send troops Mm. to help once he got further south. There was panic in London, people absolutely terrified of what was going to happen, but Duke of Cumberland, who's the second son of uh, George II, he returns from Europe. He's the second son of George II. So Frederick's brother. Yes, Frederick's younger brother. He was the one that was leading the army in Europe. He comes back with Mm. his large professional army. And what's more, no one's actually come out in support of the Jacobites. None of the English, the French haven't landed. Mm. And even though Bonnie Prince Charlie wants to continue, his generals convince him or force him, really, to retreat. So they get to Derby, stop, then they turn back. And that's there's no pitched battle? Well, they head off to Scotland, but unlike previous times where they'd had failed rebellions, this time England follow them with mm. the Duke of Cumberland. So in 1746, we have the Battle of Culloden. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, initially, when they were sort of camped before the night before the battle, it was Cumberland's birthday, so the English were sort of celebrating and bit of uh, alcohol for everyone. So Bonnie Prince Charlie and the Scots think, oh, we'll catch them, we'll do a night attack when they're not ready for Clever. us. Unfortunately, because it was dark and they couldn't see, it took them so long trudging about that they realised by the time they got there it would be light. So they headed back. <laughs> so and had no sleep. No sleep, whilst the English had a nice tot of rum. And <laughs> yeah, sleep but a hangover, <laughs> no sleep at all. So the next day we have the Battle of Culloden and open ground, poorly chosen area for the Jacobites. They were exposed to artillery, and they suffered an overwhelming defeat. And that is the last battle on... 
It's the last pitch battle on, yes, British soil. Right. Bonnie Prince Charlie doesn't get captured, however. He becomes a fugitive, a little like Charles II. Mm. Um, he's in hiding for five months in Scotland with a rod of £30,000 on his head, but no one betrays him. Various people help him yeah. to evade capture, in particular, most famously, is Flora MacDonald, who helps him escape to uh, Isle of Skye, where he dressed as her spinning maid. Every time, always as a woman. As a woman. And uh, she performed a Highland dance to distract soldiers while he nipped off, while they weren't looking. <laughs> Um, and this is sort of famously um, in the lyrics of the Sky Boat song. What's that? Uh, well, I'm not going to sing. <laughs> Fair enough. YouTube it if you want to <laughs> look that one up. Anyway, it becomes part of Scottish folklore. Bonnie Prince Charlie, Flora MacDonald, all yeah. these sorts of things. Um, however, he falls into an alcoholic decline when he is rescued by the French back in Italy. Dies in 1788. His brother Henry, who was a cardinal, which is no use... <laughs> Dies in 1807, and the Jacobite cause Came over. is done. Mm. Also, um, Cumberland becomes known as Butcher Cumberland after Culloden. Cool. Um, the wounded apparently were finished off with bayonets and clubs. They mercilessly hunted down Jacobites who also fled. Um, James Wolfe, for general at the time, apparently refused to kill a wounded man, which are some of the orders that they were being given. Um, also, the wearing of Highland dress and tartans was forbidden. Yeah, well. yeah. But this was the age of the... Um, they were scared of the Highland charge, where they had those little tiny shields mm. that they could run and bash the bayonet out of the way and then, with the other hand, yeah. come in and do a stabby-stabby manoeuvre. Mm. But failed this time, it turned out. Yes, the guns, it proved uh, yeah. a bit more powerful yeah. than the Drat. shields. However, the important thing is the Jacobites are now done for and the Hanoverians are really established as the dynasty. Yeah. Yeah. Because they've never quite been accepted under George I, but now this is the proper establishment, establishment of the Hanoverians. Uh, firstly, politics. Okay. And quickly, the Prime Ministers. Because uh, Nick Humphrey was one person who was asking if we could do a little check-up on mm-hmm. who the Prime Ministers are now, and it's quite useful. After Walpole, of course, there's something of a void left, because he's been in power for 20 years. Well, he's a big bloke. Well, <laughs> yes, there's 20 stones worth <laughs> of uh, political muscle gone missing. The first man who takes over from him is Spencer Compton, now Earl of Willington, who was the man that George II had originally wanted to be Prime Minister. He's there from 1742 to 43 until he dies. Mm -hmm. So they need someone else. So this is almost like a dynasty thing. They're there for life, apart from Walpole, actually. Well, yes, it's more more the case that the politician will just drop dead rather than retire. Yeah, because, I mean, these are huge amounts of time compared to today. Oh, yes, absolutely. Four, four, yeah. eight years. Next up, Henry Pelham, who's there from 1743 until 54. It's also a decent amount of mm. time. He'd been a loyal servant of Walpole, had a strong rival with Lord Carteret when he first comes in, so there is a bit of a power struggle. George, again, sort of favoured the other guy. But um, Pelham resigned when George II refused to admit William Pitt, the elder, to his ministry. But then Carteret was unable to form a government, so Pelham gets reappointed mm. and establishes himself. Very effective operator, reduces the national debt, but then 1754, he dies. <laughs> so his brother takes over, Thomas Pelham Hollers, or the uh, Duke of Newcastle. Right. He's originally there for a couple of years, 1754 to 56. He's a bit of an old-style Whig, but his government collapses when um, France captures Menorca from Britain. And there's very strong criticism on the opposition benches from William Pitt the Elder. And the government can't really work unless Pitt is actually on their side because he's too strong in opposition. But Pitt and Newcastle won't work together. And what's more, George hates William Pitt the Elder. Namely because Pitt 
clashes with George openly because he believed, Pitt believed, that Britain's interests should be worldwide and naval, mm. like you're saying, India, America, whereas George likes Europe and he likes his army. Right. What's more, Pitt is openly critical and derisory about Hanover mm. and criticises George for being pro-Hanoverian. Right. So they're not really on the same wavelength. Okay. However... The Seven Years' War comes along in 1756, and this forces the issue. Now, this who's this? This is Spain and France. Oh, this is everybody. It's Britain, uh, mainly Britain and France, from our perspective, but also Prussia, Spain, Russia, Sweden, oh, okay. lots of other countries right. involved. In terms of the background, uh, the important thing here in Europe is the rise of Prussia as a major force. Mm. This is lots of bits of Germany. Mm modern-day Germany, which we see now. This is leading to tensions with France, Austria, Spain and Russia, who see them as a threat as they expand in continental Europe. Britain are concerned that France are also trying to expand and that this will have an implication for Hanover, which is a quite small and not very easy to defend. So Britain ally themselves with Prussia, namely Frederick the Great. Oh, yeah. He's this Enlightenment um, sort of absolutist ruler in Prussia. Modernises bureaucracy, modernises the army, patronises philosophers and arts and cultures, all sorts of things. Very powerful figure. Meanwhile, Austria, Russia, France, gang up in Prussia. Right. Practical question. Yes. Hanover. Yeah. Landlocked. Yeah. Middle of this, of a war in Europe. Yes. If we want to get our troops over there to defend them, how do you do it? Well, what you do is you make an alliance with a country which is over there, Prussia. Which is has a coast, northern German coast. Mm. And is nearby. Oh, right, so they just funnel them through there. Yeah. Right. Also, in America, Britain and France have had increasing tensions because they're both looking to expand their territories westward, sort of into what would now be sort of Ohio country. Right. And if France were to do this, it would block Britain expanding and limit them to their sort of, you know, sort of 13 colonies. Mm. kind of on the coast. So there's brewing tension in Europe, brewing tension in America, and various other places where they're starting to expand. And then we have a war starting in 1756. France invade and conquer Menorca from Britain, and Frederick the Great for Prussia invades Saxony, which is sort of Austrian territory. Mm-hmm. So war starts, and it's a global conflict. We've got fighting in Europe, in India, in North America, Africa, the West Indies. Winston Churchill said it could be described as the First World War. That's interesting, isn't it? So it's wherever there's... um, It's not over specific pieces of land as such, it's just wherever they meet the opposition, they'll just have a go. Exactly. There are early defeats for Britain, which is why we saw the fall of uh, Duke of Newcastle's government originally. Um, France captured Menorca in 1756, which gives them a bit of control of the Mediterranean. And in 1757, Duke of Cumberland takes his army over once again, Mm. uh, but he's defeated by the French, forced to sign a peace treaty where he withdraws Hanover from the war and accepts French occupation. Of Hanover? Yeah, so Hanover has, in effect, been taken over by France. Uh Uh-oh. George II isn't very pleased about this. No, he wouldn't be, no. Cumberland gets brought back home and he's replaced by Ferdinand of Brunswick, who's another European ally. And another man comes to the fore, William Pitt the Elder. So, 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 but George accepts that peace treaty? No, he doesn't. That's why he brings Cumberland back and sends Ferdinand off to sort So, out. this fellow didn't have the power to sign that. We're yes, still at war. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, William Cavendish, the Duke of Devonshire, had been a kind of stopgap Prime Minister from 1756 to 57, while Newcastle and Pitt sorted out their differences. Mm. But things have got so bad now with losing Hanover and Menorca, and Pitt says, I know I can save this country and no one else can. So, reluctantly, George accepts 
Pitt as Secretary of State with direction of the war and Duke of Newcastle as Prime Minister. And Pitt brings a much more detailed look both at overall strategy but also the details of the execution. Mm. And he's thinking globally rather than just Europe and armies. So things take a turn for the better and in 1759 we have what's called the Annus Mirabilis i.e. the great year, miraculous year. Uh, yeah. Mittenden, the Battle of Mittenden, um, Ferdinand, our ally from Brunswick, who's gone over to sort out Hanover, he defeats the French and saves Hanover from being conquered. There's a real danger at this stage that Hanover could have been properly conquered and Prussia might have been knocked out of the war, but they stop it at Mittenden. The navy for Britain, France had been planning to invade Britain. 1759, but their plans are scuppered by naval victories at Lagos and Quiberon Bay. Mm-hmm. Canada, Admiral, uh, General Wolfe captures Quebec Quebec's from yeah. France, yep, leading to British dominance of Canada. Mm. And elsewhere we've got victories in the West Indies, in Africa and in India. It's imperial triumph after triumph after triumph. Britain just keeps winning all over the place. Wait, and how much is this down to Pitt? He's certainly very important in terms of directing resources and making sure that everything's coordinated. Because he's got that specific role as opposed to being Prime Minister. Yeah. Right. However, in 1760, the next year, George II has a decline. Of the fatal kind? Of the fatal kind, yes. <laughs> when I say decline, it's a rather <laughs> rapid one. Generally, his health was very robust. Later years, he was largely sort of deaf and blind in one eye. Um, but one day, um, without any warning, he rose early at Kensington Palace, drank hot chocolate, went to the toilet. So oh, no, he did an Elvis. He did an Elvis. He had a heart attack on the toilet. No way! I was joking. No, he did. He really did. Wow. Died on the toilet. Oh, oh dear. Uh, but at the age of 76... That's not a decent old life. Uh, He was buried in Westminster Abbey alongside Caroline, his queen, who died, you know, almost Mm. 30 years earlier. And their coffins were sort of interlinked so that they would be together. Um, They're the last monarchs interred at Westminster Abbey. Really? Yeah. Where are they buried now? Uh, Windsor, I think. they tend to be. Okay. Anyway, that is the life of George II. Mm -hmm. Quite a long one, as we've just seen. But how will he stack up when we come to review him? Let's have a go. Battleiness! So, we've had some uh, actually very impressive things for Battleiness. This is where George II's got a bit of a chance to make a good impression. Firstly, in 1708, we had the Battle of Oudenard. So this was during the reign of Queen Anne, when he was about 24, when he was fighting... Oh, this is him personally fighting this Yeah, he was personally fighting Duke of Marlborough. He um, fought with bravery and distinction, charged at the head of uh, the Hanoverian cavalry, Mm. and he had a horse shot from under him. Mm. It's too random, these battles at this time, though. You just get a bullet... Well, exactly. um, Medieval stuff where it's all... You know, sword skills, you could just but get it, but miles away. But equally brave when you're charging with a horse, yeah, and comes, things yeah. being shot all over the place. Indeed, the Duke of Marlborough himself wrote about him and said he distinguished himself extremely, charging at the head of and animating by his example the troops who played a good part in this happy victory. Hmm. So, praise from the yeah. Duke of Marlborough. In 1743, and um, this is part of a uh, thing called the War of the Austrian Succession, we had the Battle of De- Dettingen. Yeah. And this was led... By George II, he led Hanoverian, British, Hessian, Austrian and Dutch troops in battle. Again, uh, the French laid a trap for the smaller Allied forces that George was leading, but they got outmanoeuvred and defeated. So it was a win for George, win for the Allies. George himself widely praised for his bravery and his leadership. Apparently he was galloping excitedly from one battalion to another, sort of exhorting them. 
giving them courage. At one stage, his horse apparently started bolting, started running backwards, what? back to the rear. Right. Um, so George dismounted, uh, saying that he could trust his own legs not to run away, and thereon advanced on foot with his sword. Held aloft. <laughs> That's brilliant. He's really, he's really got it, isn't he? And when he was told, you know, to get out of the way, it was dangerous, he said, don't tell me of danger, I'll be even with them. Now, boys, now for the honour of England, fire and behave brave, and the French will run. Brilliant. He is 60 years old at this point as well. So, so he's actually came to England. And time. he is the last British monarch to lead troops in battle. This is the last time that a reigning British monarch is there actually with his troops fighting in a battle. That's a great, great fact. Isn't last it? time it ever happens in George, George II. II. Because there's, is there monarchs in the future who, uh, who fight in a battle but aren't king at the time? There are. There are monarchs that serve. Right, okay. Before they came, but this is the last time an actual ruler yeah, is okay. fighting. Also, of course, we have the Battle of Culloden in 1746. George II isn't actually involved in it himself, but nevertheless, it's during his reign. Well, we're going to have to do that now, though, aren't we? He's mm. the last one. So, exactly. Yeah. Uh, last pitch, and it's after Dettingen as well. Last pitch battle on British soil, final defeat of the Jacobites. And although he wasn't leading the army, he did provide quiet leadership, uh, calm leadership during the crisis. He recognised from early reports that the Jacobites didn't have support. Mm. And they had a, didn't have a large enough army. He thought, no, there's nothing to worry about. And of course, as we just uh, come to at the end of his life, there's a Seven Years' War. Mm. But there's a whole host of triumphs. Firstly, in India, this is the period of Clive of India. Oh, yeah. Very famous imperial figure. He went to India aged 18 with the East India Company. Mm. No military training or anything like that. And there was a lot of conflict because not only there was a British East India Company, but there's also a French East India Company. Both of whom, obviously, have tensions as they're trying to dominate India with their kind of client rulers. Yeah. Well, 1746 to 47, and this is before the Seven Years' War, he fought bravely uh, in the fall of Madras. So this, this is Clive. This is Clive of yeah. India. Then in 1751, the siege of Arcot, he captured a fort with a very small force, held off a heavy siege attack. And then in the Seven Years' War, enforced the return of Calcutta uh, mm. to Britain from France. France failed in the siege of Madras, and ultimately the French were forced to accept... British client governments and rulers in India. So this was basically the point at which Britain establishes itself as the dominant power in India over France. Yeah, yeah. In the West Indies, they captured uh, Martinique and Guadeloupe. And then we had the French attempts to invade in 1759. Why didn't they just do this when uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie was, was at it? Well, I guess they were busy doing other things as well. Mm. And also, yeah. the problem was, the Catch-22 situation is that Bonnie Prince Charlie can't get into a strong enough position at which the French would help mm. without the French helping. Yeah. And the French yeah, won't yeah. help unless he... So yeah. he's, he's never quite able to work out. But they have their own plans. I mean, really, they just use the Jacobites as a pawn. They just sort of throw them off and see, do a bit of mischief, see what you can manage there. Do so never full-heartedly. Oh, OK. So that's mostly to get the British less involved in European mm-hmm. wars. Yeah. So in 1759, the fr- uh, French plan to have about 50,000 troops land at Portsmouth full-scale invasion, and they were hoping to also be supported by a Jacobite uprising, so there was a sort of a, another chance with Bonnie Prince Charlie yeah. at this stage. However, Britain knew about this, knew that it was coming, they realised that France would try to combine its Atlantic and Mediterranean fleets, so they had to plan to make sure that the two of them weren't able to link up, and the invasion couldn't happen. So first of all, we had the Battle of Lagos. Uh, Boscoen, for the British, was sent to blockade a French fleet at Toulon, but he was forced off to Gibraltar where he got engaged in combat. So this was the Battle of Lagos. Two French ships destroyed and three were captured. So sort of half of the French fleet that was coming along gets taken out. 
Right, yeah, excellent. The French, however, decide they're going to press on and do it anyway. So Admiral Hawke um, is then sent to deal with them, intercepts the French fleet, engaged in a general melee and won a decisive victory, six ships being destroyed and one captured. Ooh. To the how, out of how many is this? I'm not sure how many, but that's the you know it's pretty decent because these are big yeah warships big now. ships. Because in the past we've been dealing with bigger numbers, but I guess mm. they're smaller, smaller vessels. Boats, yeah. The aftermath of this is that Britain really establishes mastery of the seas and prevents France from being able to invade mm. for the time being. Um, although apparently one French uh, admiral Turo did manage a five day occupation of Carrickfergus in Ireland. That? He oh, somehow right. snuck around the back <laughs> and set up there for five days yeah. before. No one's coming to play. Let's yes, play. rushing yeah. off again. And also we have Canada. Uh, 1758, uh, Louisbourg was captured. Um, this is in Nova Scotia, a fortress in France that had gone to and fro for a number of years. Uh, they waited for the spring before advancing further down the river of St. Lawrence, where a young James Cook charted the river. Oh, right. And then 1759, they advanced in Quebec under Wolfe, James Wolfe, the man who refused to kill a prisoner at... Oh, right, yes. He's now in charge. He engages in a sort of cat-and-mouse battle with the French leader, Montcalm. So he was trying to find a suitable place where he could land and launch an attack, but Montcalm was entrenching his defences too strongly. He wasn't able to Mm. get a foothold. Eventually, however, he finds a narrow path up to what's called the Plains of Abraham, because it was owned by a man called Abraham. Right. Sort of up the cliffs, very um, hilly path. Heavy, heavy firefight develops between the British and the French. Wolfe gets shot in the stomach and chest. Uh, apparently, when he fell to the ground, he heard an officer saying, they run, see how they run. Uh, Wolfe asked who it was that was running, and when he was told that it was the French, um, he sort of gave several orders for what they should do, turned onto his side and said, now God be praised, I will die in peace, and then died. Oh, that that's, sounds like they sort of... Um Hero's death they would have loved at this time. Absolutely. Why is he not more famous? Um, I think he's probably um, overshadowed, I think, Nelson, obviously. Yeah, he got Comes along later. But at the time, yes, that very much early imperial hero. Mm. Montcalm, the French leader, is also mortally injured, um, but it ends up in a British victory as they take out the French while Mm. they're in retreat. French launch a counter-siege later, but um, the naval victory at Quebec Bay doesn't just stop the French invading Britain, it also stops them sending reinforcements to Canada. Yeah, so they can really, really start to press this home. Exactly. So then 1760, the British captain Montreal, and ultimately Canada becomes entirely British domain. Mm. Mm. And as I say, 1759, it's known as the Annus Mirabilis, unprecedented view of stunning victories that leaves Britain as the dominant worldwide power. As Horace Walpole, son of Robert Walpole, uh, said, Our bells are worn threadbare with ringing for victories. Indeed, one is forced to ask every morning, what victory is there for fear of missing one? So that's all the good stuff, and that's a lot of good stuff. Yeah, it really is. However, we can do a bit of an argument on the other side. There are a number of inconclusive conflicts during this period, because the Seven Years' War, that's right at the end of George's reign. Indeed, it does go on for a few years more, so it doesn't actually mm. finish when he dies. Before that, we'd had the War of the Austrian Succession in 1740-48. This is where um, the rights for Maria Theresa to succeed to the Austrian throne had been disputed. So at this point, Britain is supporting Austria against France. Dettingen was one of the battles of this conflict, but there was no follow-up mm. to Dettingen, so they didn't really get any benefit from the victory. Indeed, George II was, sadly for him, he, when he came home full of pride, he got then criticised because people said he wore the hash, uh, sash of Hanover and was said to have favoured Hanoverian troops over the British. Right. Particularly okay. by Pitt. Um, so, yes, that was one of the reasons mm. why he didn't like Pitt, because Pitt had spoiled his big He'd <laughs> taken the mickey out of his sash. Yes. Um, and indeed, actually, um, as a result of defeats 
in Europe. The French uh, tried to invade in 1744, but they planned to land in Malden. Really? Going to land in Malden, launch an invasion there, uh, but I think the weather stopped them. Yeah. And then, of course, 1745, Bonnie Prince Charlie is able to land and launch the Jacobite Rebellion. So that's partly really as a result of these inconclusive yeah. battles that Britain comes under threat from afar. We also have the War of Jenkins' Ear. Oh, I like that one. 1739-48. This is a British naval captain. Apparently had his ear cut off by a Spaniard and was told to tell George II to expect the same treatment because they thought they were abusing their um, asiento, the slave trade. Uh, indeed, a failed assault in this war on Cartagena was influential in the fall of Walpole. Oh, right. And also there's King George's War, 1744-48, North American operations during the Austrian War. Again, briefly captured Louisbourg at this time, but French got it back. So there's a lot of to and mm. So before the Seven Years' War... It's not that great. It's all these confusing, pointless... It does feel like it's building to something, though. It does ultimately build. Yeah. Mm. But right up until just before George II dies, you know, there's a lot of... So 1759, what year did he die? 1760. Right. He dies at the height of Mm. military glory, which is the best time to go. Yeah, definitely. Not on head with the third job. Indeed. Uh, also, there are some defeats. Preston Pans, where they were defeated by the Jacobites, who, of course, they ultimately won at Culloden. Mm. Minorca in 1756, captured by France. Um, Admiral Bing was um, sent over to relieve the garrison, failed to do so, and um, in face of public outrage, and apparently for not doing his utmost, was executed. Ooh, you don't hear the word execution much these days. Um, so I said, George is fortunate to die at the height yeah. of military glory. <coughs> um... And we can say, to what extent are we going to give him the credit for it? We've got to now, I think. We've got to now, although, of course, he does do some stuff himself. But this is the age of, you know, Clive, Wolf, Hawke, Pitt, of course, very much the man that we can look to for coordinating the campaign. Indeed, he did have to battle George II at times, because Pitt wants to send troops to America and to India. George II is, hmm, maybe we should send more men to Hanover. <laughs> yeah. Mm, maybe India. Hanover. <laughs> yeah. So he does have to have a bit of a battle with him. That's true. That's but true. that's a very long list of huge military triumphs which sets up the British Empire. And as you say, this is the last one with the, of the king actually fighting. Them. So there's this 1759 amazing stuff. Yeah. His actual great fighting when he does fight. Yeah, as prince and then also as... As actual king. Actually as king. And of course, every setback and defeat is ultimately undone in 1759. So yeah. you have to say, when he dies... And they couldn't it's not all be good. They had to keep their power. Mm. They're trying to extend their power. So it wasn't like he was going to go, I'm not playing the European game. Yeah. He had to be there. While at the same time, managing to extend power abroad. Mm. It might have been pushing that way, but mm. it was done. I mean, it's huge. He's, he's the last one to fight. Yeah. Plus points. He fights well. Yeah. In incredible victories. You know, India, Canada, yeah. America. Mm-hmm. It's very good, Graham. What's it going to be as a score? I can't see it. It could be less than eight. So the only thing against him, really, is that you could argue that Pitt and all these other great figures are responsible for 1759. At that point, George is deaf, yeah. blind, and just wants to send troops to Hanover. <laughs> <laughs> he also he apparently never took much interest in the Navy, so he can't really take any credit for the naval victories, which are essential. I'm going to give him some credit, though, because I think we're going to have to start viewing this differently and I want to give him more points for just for the Rex facts that you did mm. there. The last last king to fight in battle. I've got mm. to give him nine. That's big. That is big. I'm I'm going to give him a, an eight and a half. 
I think the only reason why I'm maybe not going slightly more is that I, th- I think partly just that thing of that it's sort of it's just it's lucky in so many ways that it just stops at this exact point because yeah. it's you know it will to and fro mm. and he just happens to end he ends ahead at yeah. this great point yeah there is more to come but nevertheless it's very good so that's a nine and an eight and a half that's seventeen and a half for battleiness scandal. Well, this is what we really expect to see from the Georges. Yeah, we like that. And of course, George II has some mistresses. Uh, First of all, it's Henrietta Howard. Um, This is the um, servant of Queen Caroline, very beautiful woman. Hang on, yeah, he loved Queen Caroline. He did, but he had his mistresses as well. Oh. (laughs) Sad. (laughs) Yeah. There's also uh, uh, Mary Delorraine, who's sort of an interim mistress between Caroline dying and... Someone else coming in. And then there's Amelie von Wolmoden. Young married woman, about uh, 20 years younger than George. But she was his mistress from 1735. So this is just before Caroline dies. Mm-hmm. Indeed, he wrote to Caroline telling her all about Amelie. Saying, I know you will love Madame Wolmoden because she loves me. No way. Very, very sort of open and uh, <laughs> truthful about this. amazing. <laughs> And there were satirical posters about this on, uh, put up on St. James's Palace saying, Lost or strayed out of this house, a man who has left a wife and six children on the parish. Whoever will give any tidings of him to the church wardens of St. James's Parish, so as he may be got again, shall receive four shillings and sixpence reward. Because he was out on about. He was off in Hanover with Amelie von Walmart. Right. Mm. Um, and also there's the suppression of his father's will. So when George II becomes king at the start of the reign, at the first council, the Archbishop of Canterbury produces... George's first will. And George II says, oh, I'll take that. <laughs> you going to read it out? Nine. <laughs> and he never publishes it at all. He never um, lets known what the contents of the will. Um, Horace Walpole said this was an indelible blot in George II's memory. Because he had a reputation of being rather tight with money, so it was thought there were probably debts and payments and things in there that he didn't want to acknowledge. Mm. Yeah. So he just held it in. Yeah, what he, I mean, he gave his son a quarter of his the allowance. Exactly, yes. However, George II actually maybe not so good for scandal. If we go to the mistresses, he is actually a very reluctant philanderer. Really? Henrietta Howard, um, in 1734, he was pretty tired of her and she was quite keen to leave court, but Caroline was actually the one that was making her stay. Why? Um, the thing was, George II didn't really hold any affection for Henrietta Howard. He just thought the man in his position ought to have a mistress. Oh, right. So he never really cared for her. He right. just thought, well, I suppose I must. So Caroline's thinking, this is better than him falling in love with someone else. Well, yes, and um, he, he really loves Caroline. So 1709, he wrote, um, he wrote many lovely letters to her, but this one, um, after the birth of one of their children, saying, the peace of my life depends upon knowing you are in good health and upon the conviction of your continued affection for me. I shall endeavour to attract it by all imaginable passion and love. See you next week after I'm back with Emily. He said he was heartbroken by Caroline's death, and such was the level of his grief that when she urged him on her deathbed to remarry after she died, he said, no, no, I will have mistresses. (laughs) 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 Oh, they'll meet you in the middle. (laughs) And also that even the will isn't actually so amazing, because actually what was in the will was that George I was proposing to split Hanover and Britain between his uh, future grandsons. Why? I'm sure, really. He thought, I'll have one person there, one person here, and just 
splitting them apart again. And it was debatable whether this was even legal, that George I could just arbitrarily do it. Mm. George II said, no, it's Hanover, it's Britain, these are our territories, not splitting them up. Mm. So, you know, it wasn't actually for money, it was just to uh, keep control of right. the territory. So, it's not actually that great for scandal. No. A reluctant philanderer. No, that's, yeah, and it's not really... Not splitting it up, it's, you know... I mean, there's... I mean, it's 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 quite fun. I like the fact I, this is the first time we've had someone so reluctant to take initiatives, <laughs> but did anyway. It's good. If um, I must, um, it's almost like he just needs to score some points, so he thought he'd have a go. Mm. He's thinking of Exeter here. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's he's he had mistresses. One. Yeah, I don't think he deserves any more than one. Really, I think maybe I'll give him I'll give him two for the. Um, I will have mistresses. <laughs> yeah, OK. Uh, but that's only three for scandal. Right back down again for George. Subjectivity. In his favour. Mm. He's a constitutional monarch, of course. Um, his ministers, he hated Walpole, hated Townsend because of the way that they'd supported, uh, they'd forced the reconciliation. But nevertheless, he recognises that they are the right men for the job, so he still employs them. Yeah, that's true. Um, he's also very hard-working. Um, one of the reasons he doesn't have a good reputation in this area is because he doesn't have much correspondence. But this is because he was always scribbling on the margins of his minister's papers and then giving it back to them with his thoughts. So he doesn't actually work very hard. He just doesn't leave oh, right. a very long paper trail himself. Lady uh, Montague um, said of him, With him our laws and liberties were safe. He possessed in a great degree the confidence of his people and the respect of foreign governments. And a certain steadiness of character made him of great consequence in these unsettled times. During his long reign, we were never subject to the insolence and rapaciousness of favourites. Yeah, that had been an issue, isn't it, for a while? Yeah. Mm. And also, his character, she admits, would not afford subject for epic poetry, but will look well in the sober pages of history. Well, this, his, now, Graham, you've had a look mm. at the sober pages of history. Well, it's maybe not such an accurate uh, really? <laughs> prediction we'll come back to. We also, and I'm having to find reasons to give him credit in this area, we've got Handel again. We gave George the first. We did give him credit, but if we recall, George the second hates George the first. Yeah, and yet oh, and he, he employs his favourite handle because he recognises. And we Tarn wouldn't have Zadok the priest. We wouldn't have Zadok the priest. Um, also, after the Austrian War of Succession came to an end, the peace of Isla Chapelle, um, there was a grand fireworks ceremony to celebrate. Uh, out at public ceremony, Handel composed the music, which is now known as the music for fireworks, Royal Fireworks. Um, which is another one of his very famous pieces. It was delayed, apparently, when George II insisted that he be scored for brass rather than violins because he wanted a more militaristic feel. So the music goes down very well. Unfortunately, the ceremony didn't because the Catherine wheels refused to turn. A rocket shot forward, setting fire to one of the spectators. <laughs> and the, the displays caught fire and burnt down. It sounds brilliant. <laughs> oh, wow. So that's what I've got in his favour. It's not really a lot of very positive doing things. No. There's rather more to say against him. He has limited power in this period. Mm. Firstly, there's Queen Caroline, who, while she is alive for the first ten years, is seen as the power behind mm. the throne. Indeed, there's a contemporary rhyme, you may strut, Dapper George, but we'll all be in vain. We know it is Queen Caroline that reign. Do they only speak in poetry? They I think so, yes. Some people <laughs> Indeed. Okay. Warpole, indeed, said that she can make him propose the very thing as his own opinion, which a week before he had rejected as mine. So she is really quite powerful. Isn't she? Very powerful, very influential. However, Walpole is he's flattering Caroline to keep her on her side because, of course, they have that sort of partnership. Yeah. Um, and he, he said to her, Your Majesty knows that this country is entirely in your hands. 
in reality, it was really in Walpole's hands. Because it's the politicians that hold Who the power. Who the ideas, yeah. Exactly. But George II acknowledged 1755, ministers are kings in this country. There are kings enough in England. I am nothing there. I am old and want rest and should only go to be plagued and teased there about the damned House of Commons. So he didn't want, he didn't want Walpole in the first place. He preferred Townsend to Walpole, because Townsend was pro-Hanoverian. He didn't like Pitt, who hated Hanover, but he's forced to appoint Pitt. So mm. he's constantly forced to mm. appoint men that he doesn't actually like. He can't get his own way. He's also not very popular for his Hanoverian instincts. Because despite his, I have not one drop of blood in my veins, that is not English, once he becomes king, he turns into his father. And he, he, just, does, he loves Hanover, yeah. and he just wants to go there all the time. So he ends up saying, I'm sick to death of all this foolish stuff, and with, wish with all my heart that the devil may take all your bishops, and the devil take your minister, and the devil take your parliament, and the devil take the whole island, provided I can get out of it and go to Hanover. Wow, that could have been straight out of the mouth of George I. <laughs> exactly, he's changed his tune. Indeed, Pitt publicly criticised him for his pro-Hanoverian instincts, saying it is now too apparent that this great, this powerful, this formidable kingdom is considered only a province to a despicable electorate. We need only look at the instances of particularity that have been shown, the yearly visits that have been made to that delightful country. Mm-hmm. We must also come on to George II's personality. Yeah. At the start, when he's prince and everything, and the corona- up to the coronation ceremony, he's all, he loves the people, he's out there, he's talking to everyone, he's, I love you all the English. But just like his dad, turns out to be a bit of a dullard. Oh. No particular interest in culture. His interests are essentially, essentially genealogy and military history, mm. particularly his own. And he was obsessed with routine. If he did something on one day, that was a very good reason for him doing it the next day. So, did he have OCD sort of type thing? Well, he d- he was obsessed with these things. A courtier was once warned, the least negligence or the slightest inattention reported to him may do you infinite prejudice. So there's an I- another example of his passion for Henrietta Howard. Apparently he used to visit her in her rooms at 1900 hours precisely. And if he got there early, he'd walk up and down the gallery looking at his watch for up to a quarter of an hour before he actually went in. <laughs> God, that's ro- rock and roll romance. <laughs> Lord Harvey, um, one of the contemporaries, said, I will not trouble you with any account of our occupations. No mill horse ever went in a more constant track or more unchanging circle. Mm. Does the, uh, this doesn't really marry up with the sort of warrior uh, from earlier on. Well, that's, that's what he loves. He likes his military and he likes his routine. Mm. Oh, I suppose, yeah, yeah. Just go yeah, together. Yeah. Caroline is the cultured woman. Apparently one time when George II returned from Hanover, she was forced to take down his portrait, Van Dyke portrait of Charles I and some works by Leonardo. Really? Oh. Instead put up some classical stuff that George liked. And he also gave her pictures of all the balls and masquerades that he'd enjoyed while he was in Hanover so that he could tell her all about them. Oh, it's quite <laughs> sweet. <laughs> it's quite sweet, but That's also... a bit dull. Yeah. He's also quite a grumpy man. Mm. Uh, one of his daughters, Anne, said that when he is in his worst humours and the devil to everyone who comes near him, it is always because one of his pages has powdered his periwig ill or a housemaid has set a chair where it does not used to stand. That's going to be annoying, isn't it, if that sort of thing puts you off? And it is uh, Lucy uh, Worsley's story noted that he struts through Britain's history books like a kind of tin pot dictator, brusque, pompous, and a little bit ludicrous. He does sound really pompous. Remember, he's quite a small man, and he's quite a grumpy man all the time. So apparently there's a thing called the Rump Steak Club, which is where George would speak individually to his courtiers, and he'd turn his back to those he didn't wish to acknowledge. So this became known as rumping, because he's in fact turning his backside, his rump. 
So they had a club of those who'd been rumped. <laughs> so when he found out about it, he was very cross and responded, What? Are they laughing at me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it sounds a bit David Brentish. And he doesn't used, appreciate it. Apparently he used to let off steam by kicking his hat around the room, and sometimes even his wig. Well, then, so you just have a strop yeah. and be sort of hands in his pocket, kicking his wig from side well, to side. He yeah, he does sound a bit of a loser. In his defence, the main sources for this are partly Walpole, but also this chap, Lord Harvey, who are good friends with Caroline, who's their patron. So they will be inclined to say she was very cultured and brilliant. This guy was a bit of a stupid mm. bore. And there was a, a man, Lord Cholomont, who commented on George II, saying that his temper was warm and impetuous, but he was good-natured and sincere. Unskilled in the royal talent of dissimulation, he always was what he appeared to be. He might offend, but he never deceived. So at least they knew what they were getting. What you see is yeah. what you get. Yeah. It's not like he's going to do Henry VIII and turn around and cut your head off. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So they couldn't. You couldn't, yes. Yeah. Maybe that's why he's so grumpy. Yeah, yeah. Just want someone's blasted head. I can't do nothing. <laughs> so that is uh, the subjectivity of George II. I mean, it's... In the basic term, it's a good period because it's stable. Other than the Jacobite Rebellion, you know, you're stable, you're safe, it's all pretty nice. But yeah. in terms of George's influence and George himself as a personality... Would you want to be a subject during this period? Stable, yes, but you can't... I don't think I can go too high in that mm. regard because there is that rebellion. And the threat of French invasion, of course. Twice. Mm. With the, yeah. People didn't really like Hanover and mm. he was dull. Mm. It's not much, is there? There's not, but at the same time, it's like that thing with George I last week. We, have, we haven't got a lot to credit him with, but at the same time, we haven't got a lot to discredit him with. It's just... that, yeah, maybe that's what you'd like as a subject. You just want know that the next day will be as secure as the one before. Mm. So I, so on that basis, I can't give him above five because of the Jacobite Rebellion. I'm mm. giving him a five because it's boring. I think a solid five yeah. as well. A ten for George II. Longevity. He is king from 1727 to 1760, which is 33.33 .33 years. So we type that in, that gives him a score of 10.49. Okay. Dynasty, not the programme. Three surviving children. Um, it's quite sad, because actually the, Caroline had ten pregnancies. Mm. Uh, there was a miscarriage, a stillborn child, and an infant death, but the others all sort of grow to a decent age, so four of them predeceased George II. But he had three, then. <clears throat> Frederick was one of them. Well, no, Frederick died <clears throat> in 1751. Oh, so he had three that survived him. him. Yeah, yeah, with his, Which is okay. relevant. Yeah. So, and one of them being George III. No, because George oh. III is his grandson. Why? Because it's, it's, it's the son of Frederick. Son. Why did it skip a generation? Frederick is the eldest son. His child is the next in line to the throne. It's right. the first time this yeah. has happened. In fact, I think possibly the only time since Edward III and Richard II. Because remember, That's Edward III, the Black Prince, who is next in line, had a child. That child is then the next. Yeah. So okay. it goes down like that. Um, so anyway, so... Uh, Three uh, children, ultimately, despite all those pregnancies, which gives him a score of 5.01. So, that uh, is a total score for George II of 46, which is not too shabby, actually. That uh, puts him between Henry VII and Athelstan. Really? That is his life and reign, but does he have that mark of greatness, that lasting legacy, that great achievement, that star quality, which we call... Rex Factor! True, are you going to have to try and persuade me? Well, I mean, he was one who I think someone a while ago on I think it was Facebook or Twitter said, or Hotmail said, as a, a dark horse. 
for the Rex Factor, and he does have more of a go at it than George I did. Certainly. We've got him as the last British monarch to lead his troops into battle. Oh, that's true. That's very that's very old school, Rex. Very old school. And of course, we have a man, you know, sword yeah. held aloft, marching into battle. And and it's 1759. And 1759. What else starts for? Clear That's pretty impressive stuff. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I'm coming around. On the other hand, dominated by Caroline and politicians. A lack of real legacy other than those military victories just before he dies. There's nothing really sort of on the home front that you can really say. I don't mind them being dominated by Caroline thing, mm. so to speak. Um, I think... Um, <laughs> Each of their own. I mean, he takes his advice from somewhere. Yeah. And it's Caroline. There's been plenty of um, queen, co- queen consorts mm. who've, um, uh, who would have perhaps in their own right won mm. Rex Factor. Maybe Caroline would have done as well. Um, and he's in an age where he has to be advised by politicians. And Caroline Troll can be overplayed as well, because his style of government doesn't really change after she dies, so some have argued that actually it's overemphasized a little bit. Right, yeah. How dominant she was. I think the problem for George, and this is the thing Antonia Fraser, I think, was the person who in Herbert wrote this, that he sort of, he comes close to greatness without ever quite getting there. He somehow always falls short. And it's things like the fact that he ultimately, for all his glories, he ends up, you know, dying on the toilet. <laughs> this rather undignified way to go. Yeah. And that sort of sums him up and then he's had that little tin pocket tater kicking his That's it. He, his wig around. He's sort of he's he's almost there but he But he up. missed the party because he's having a strop. Yeah. Oh, but it but in every other way. I mean not every other way, subjectivity was a bit boring. And scandal was scandal for It's only really the military stuff. But he's the he's the first sort of well he's not the first Imperial King, but he's the last of the old School kings who's mm. actually in battle, leading troops successfully. And he dies when Britain mm. becomes the preeminent power in the world. He sort of got his sword held aloft in one hand and a sort of chilled sonsair in the other one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a bit of both, yeah. straddling mm. the ears. Can we have a Rex Factor point five? <laughs> no, we can't. It's got to be a yes or a no. Because he's struggling, that's that's probably where we're struggling, because he's struggling. Do, do we give him... Do we not give him the credit because he's... He just has being actually advised, done it earlier. And he has actually done it earlier. Yeah. Or do we look at it from the more modern perspective, in which case he gets it? I would, if you want to go for it, I'd be happy to give it to him. But I, sh- I shouldn't have this little butt in my head. <laughs> be, he's, uh, I'm rumping him. I think it's going to go no. Very, very good. Uh, I'm going to rump him as well. Mm. It could be our new phrase. I think it's that thing he doesn't quite get there. It is, it's only the military stuff that's all he's got. Yeah. He tries and he's trying. But somehow he doesn't get it. He's one of those who'll always be grumpy that he feels he doesn't get the credit he deserves. Yeah, yeah. But Rex Factor winners don't have this grumpiness about not getting the... They deserve it, they get it. They just take it. Yeah. So, that's a no for George II. He had a good try, but this is an elite club. You can't just let anyone in. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, next time, we will be doing his grandson. Yes. Okay. George III. Let us know what you think on... uh, Facebook, on Twitter, RexFactPodcast at Hotmail.com or a comment that's, on Yeah, that's an equickly elite club, but you're Indeed. more than welcome to join. Yes. <laughs> uh, and we'll see you next time. Cheerio. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. 
You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Intelligence.